1: through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello.
0: What do you say? Uh, Michael, are you there?
1: Yes, I'm here.
0: Great. So we can continue. My name is Roy Paul. I'll be hosting the Gift of Freedom tonight. I am joined by Michael Henry Adams, who is a noted Harlem historian, author, uh, cultural historian, and preservationist. Just for a quick note for the viewers, today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want and get a free audio book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at com. For those who wish to call in and ask any questions, you can call 347-324-5552. So, Michael, it, it really is a thrill, and I'm delighted to be speaking with you because you are everything Harlem, as I like to say. You know all about Harlem's history, and you know about how people feel about some of the issues that are impacting Harlem today. So I want to get a, a very an overall abstract view from your perspective from when you came to Harlem and the differences you've seen to present day.
1: Well you know that's really quite interesting because when I came to Harlem, uh I, I, I was born in Akron, Ohio and um and lived in middle class neighborhoods that were mostly black. And there were um, poor black neighborhoods in the, our city with, where there were relations of mine who lived, and I would go there, and we always had a slight amount of sort of trepidation, and that was sort of how I felt about Harlem, the kind of wariness. I remember before I moved here, I was going to the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, and I um, took the, uh, the the train along uh, Central Park West, but I got off one stop too far, and as a consequence, I was over by uh, Morningside uh, Avenue below the cathedral and below Morningside Park, and at first, I was sort of overjoyed because there were beautiful row houses and apartment buildings with um, ornate Victorian architecture, but then... I looked more closely, and I noticed that many of the houses, instead of there being windows, there were these metal decals that were stenciled with um, Venetian blinds and plants and caps, and, and that it was a kind of Potemkin village. Later, Much later, I learned that this had been first installed, because it used to be that Harlem was an important enough place that every presidential candidate uh, uh, who hoped to win would make a visit to Harlem. And the fees had been installed because Richard Nixon was going to be coming to Harlem to campaign, and they wanted um, him not to be, be too weirded out by all the vacant buildings that there were. So how ironic that today so many of those buildings have been acquired by Columbia University, and you've got Uh, young co-eds and uh, living there and walking around in in the middle of the night uh, below uh, Morningside Park, which once was just kind of no-man's land where no Columbia student would dare to cross through that park, and particularly not at nighttime. So Harlem has changed dramatically and continues to change. The most startling thing about the change is How quickly it occurred when I first moved here people always were talking about change but from my observation it was like for every two steps of uh, so-called improvement then things would fall back and so like every few years it would be two steps forward and three steps backward and then five forward and but over time by uh, the period of about ten years ago I thought, okay, well, Harlem is really going to change. And I began to become very enthusiastic because we were starting to get some of the first new restaurants. And then I was profiled in The New Yorker by Adam Gopnik, who was writing about how Harlem was changing. And he, I realized, didn't see it in the same way that I did. That is, he said of me, he said, Michael Henry Adams, so far as Harlem is concerned, not only sees the glass half full instead of half empty, he sees a glass where others see only a puddle of stagnant water spilled long, long ago. And he was talking about Harlem. And I thought, what does he mean? Because although I was enthusiastic about Harlem, I didn't think that I was being Pollyannish and unrealistic. But then I realized that the reason why he was characterizing me in this way was that I would take him around, and there were still a lot of vacant buildings. There were still a lot of vacant lots. And for me, I just overlooked those because there had been so many more in the past. And what I realized was that he couldn't really appreciate how startling the changes were because he had just come and been in Harlem a few times with me. Whereas over a period of about 15 years at that point of living in Harlem, I had seen such a dramatic transformation that it gave rise to these uh, feelings that Harlem was on its way to becoming the sort of place that we always dreamed it would be a beautiful place that would uh, be a kind of reincarnation of the Harlem Renaissance. Well, of course, part of the sort of nightmare of that dream come true is that now, with it, Harlem is becoming this place where those of us who have lived here for a long time, those of us who are African-American, find it harder at than ever to afford to live in, because even though the median income in Harlem, according to the last census tract, was taken uh, in 2010, it's only $36,000, there are brand new studio apartments that are renting for around $3,000. And there are penthouse apartments in Harlem that are selling for over a million dollars. There's some that are selling for $2 million. And so that is not meant, those are not accommodations that are meant for uh, the majority of the African Americans who have lived there and made Harlem a viable place for all those decades when it was completely, utterly neglected and redlined by banks and, It didn't matter whether you were black or white or rich or poor, you couldn't get a loan to buy a property or to improve property for love or money. There was no way you could go to a bank and get any kind of um, uh, home improvement loan or mortgage money. So I
0: feel mm-hmm. like I'm going on and on. <laughs> well, no, I I think that to the extent that you can share your insight and historical analysis, really, it's helpful to the conversation because much of that sets the stage for what a lot of people see as uh, really all of these uh, extremes coming into each other and butting heads. Whether it's you know the education system in Harlem or the the public you know the, the public housing situation. Uh, and all of that seems to stand from the historical perspective that at one point, you know, throughout the city of New York even, um, it it wasn't very kind to people who who were poor Uh, and and now... No, it's it's
1: it's still not kind to be poor or poor I mean, it's the most shameful thing you can be is to be poor and, and no one cares whether you live or die frankly, so that They're building all of these apartments for well-to-do people in Harlem, but they're building nothing to speak of for people who are poor. And uh, so what will become of those people who make up still the majority of the people who live in Harlem? The great irony is that, you know, Congressman Rangel, uh, created the empowerment zone, not just for Harlem, but empowerment, their empowerment zones all over the country. And that certainly has had an amazing impact in terms of um, drawing new restaurants and businesses, and also in causing the development of new uh, um, condominiums and rental properties. But the irony is, is that in attracting more prosperous people there, because there are more whites who are more prosperous than blacks, ironically, Congressman Rangel and other politicians like C. Virginia Fields who who got these tax incentives to to, um, attract new businesses on 8th Avenue, um, which officially is called uh, Boulevard, uh, those transformations of these blighted areas have ironically um, exacerbated the transformation of Harlem into this more prosperous, more white place. And how ironic is it that you're a working-class person who lives in Harlem and you're paying your federal and state and city taxes, and part of your tax dollars have been used to create policies that are going to push you out and create some um, attractive and affordable place for someone else to live in. So uh, the rezoning of 125th Street, the re- rezoning of West Harlem to accommodate Columbia's expansion, these are all things that are making Harlem a more hospitable place for well-off whites and are making it a less welcoming place for African Americans and Latinos who don't have any money or who have low incomes. And that seems to me to be a kind of tragic thing. It it reminds me, it's sort of symbolized of this new proposal by the National Urban League. On 125th Street, they want to build a combination um, luxury apartment building office building that will include their headquarters, and um, shops, including a um, museum that will document the history of civil rights in New York City. Well, um, in proposing to build this new building, they're building it on um, land that's owned by the state of New York, and they're going to be demolishing buildings that were built by the city of New York, I believe. I hope I haven't got that backward. Um, But in in any case, my point is is that city and state government will be involved in subsidizing this project for the National Urban League. And, you know, on the face of it, it sounds great. a Civil Rights Museum, the National Urban League, one of the oldest, most prestigious um, uh, uh, organizations that are champions and advocates of um, creating opportunity for African Americans. And how ironic then that they're proposing demolishing these shops, about um, eight shops, which are um, currently operated by um, people of color, by Africans and African Americans, and Caribbean Americans, and there's also a man who has a sushi store who's uh, um, um, Latino, I think, and they're telling these people that to accommodate their new development that they will have to leave, that they will have the right to come back if they qualify, what does that mean? That means, you know, if you can pay five times the rent you're paying now, you can come back. And if you choose not to come back, then they have loans of up to, um, I think it's $50,000 loans that you can apply for. Well, you apply for a $50,000 loan and then what? There's no place you can rent for $50,000 on 125th Street for a year. So, It's just such a tragic thing. Now, the thing that makes it doubly um, uh, uh, poignant and and unbelievable is that back in the late 1960s, the National Urban League negotiated with the state of New York because people in Harlem were protesting the demolition of a lot of local um, minority-owned businesses to create the Harlem State Office Building, which today is known as the Adam Clayton Powell, Jr. State Office Building. And the National Urban League, as part of a um, community benefit, negotiated successfully with the state to build and set aside some storefronts for local people. And guess what? Those are the very businesses that now the National Urban League are calling for being eliminated and replaced with market rate uh, commercial spaces, which none of these people who are currently there will ever be able to afford. So Harlem is becoming a place where um, African Americans are strangers in our own land and um, clearly not welcome the way new people who've just arrived are welcome with open
0: arms. So then I think that begs that the question, what are the traditionalists, of, you know, what, are, what is left for them to do? Right? You know, the activism, whether or not it's been successful or not, I think is debatable. But for those businesses that cannot afford to remain there, do they just pack up and go where it's more affordable, wherever that is, people who cannot afford the rents? Uh, or the $3 million plus property, do they just go where they can't afford their property values, wherever that is? And I mean, is there anything to do? Well,
1: you know, there are plenty of people who will say to me as an historian, they will say, oh, well, Michael, you know, New York is changing all the time. Change is the one constant. Things are changing. Uh, what is now Chinatown was once the community where um, Jews lived in New York, poor Jews. And what's now, uh, what, 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 what is known as um, Little Italy in Greenwich Village is rapidly turning into some other place where not very many Italians live anymore. Well, the deal is for me is that they're quite right. Neighborhoods change, um, uh, populations change, demographics change. But what I feel is this, what I feel ever increasingly is this, is that for someone who has lived in a neighborhood and paid their rent and paid their taxes to be told, you can no longer live here because people are willing to pay more money to live here than you can, and therefore you have to go, that's just immoral. You know, in... Um, Bern and uh, uh, these other cities in Switzerland, which have become uh, very expensive places to live, so expensive that no elementary school teachers or firefighters or policemen or dry cleaners can afford to live there or wouldn't be able to afford to live there, that is, unless it weren't for the fact that the government has created housing that's subsidized so that these people who do the work that make the cities run are able to be able to live there. Well, I'm not necessarily calling for that, but what I'm saying is that if you are, um, you, you needn't, you ought not to have to be rich in order to live in the community where you've always lived and where you grew up nor should your children have to be rich to be able to continue to live in the neighborhood where they were born and grew up. That's immoral to me. And it's tied to the notion that uh, we have all of this disparity of income in New York that's been exacerbated and made worse than probably ever in the history of the nation. And um, uh, you have... Um, in Harlem, people who are told if you can't afford to live here that you will just have to move, and that is so wrong. And it's particularly wrong since both um, the policies of businesses along with the policies of government have been used to deliberately make it so that um, there will be new apartments that will attract more people. And this 80-20 thing where you have 20 – where in new buildings uh, the city tries to have 20% affordable housing in exchange for 80% luxury housing, well, you do the math, with that kind of percentage – of 20% that's affordable and the rest is luxury, that means that sooner or later that, <laughs> the, that the the poor people will all be gone or at least such a distinct minority that they will probably not feel very comfortable living in such a uh, fancy neighborhood. So uh, the politicians, I think, have really let the Harlem community down in terms of not preserving a place where people can live, but instead um, creating a place that's unaffordable. And when one talks about unaffordability, when one talks about a scarcity of affordable housing, back during the Second World War when there was this housing shortage and when there was a a scarcity of affordable housing. The federal government created rent control and price controls. And I think that history shows that there is a similar catastrophic housing shortage, and particularly a shortage of affordable housing that makes... It necessary to now create those same sorts of um, controls on what can be charged for apartments, so that people have regulated apartments where they can know that for um, the foreseeable future, that they will be able to have a place to live um, in the community that they're a part of. Mm-hmm.
0: So which politicians then are, would you say sort of have their finger on the pulse in terms of what's going on? I'm sorry, you're saying which politicians what? Which politicians do you think have their finger on the pulse in terms of what's going on and trying to do something to fix it?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I in full disclosure, I should say I used to work for State Senator Bill Perkins and uh, I the reason why i worked for him it wasn't because i was making a whole lot of money or anything it was because i really admired the fact that he struck me and continues to strike me as someone who actually cares whether or not poor people live or die by and large i think the most politicians they they you know they give lip service to caring about people, but they don't because the poor people, what, what is it about them that makes one not care about them? Well, by and large, often, they do not vote in any kind of uh, numbers to make much of a difference. And um, they aren't going to be people who will be able to contribute to your um, political campaign in most instances. So they're just expendable to most politicians. And, indeed, many politicians would like for them to simply um, give up on Harlem and move away somewhere else so they don't have to deal with them and so that the um, public schools will be free of them and they can move in charter schools and and, uh, make Harlem this um, safer, more appealing place for more prosperous people to move, many of whom, as I said before, because there are more white people with more money, will be white. And uh, so that's a highly commendable thing, um, to care about um, people who really don't have that much to offer you in terms of uh, political support, but who nevertheless, um, in most instances, work, pay taxes, and are the very people who, but for them, Harlem would have been like Detroit. Instead of this viable place, which now um, developers are able to come in and buy up properties and renovate them and uh, command um, astronomical sums uh, from people who, as high as rents are in Harlem they're still so much lower than they are in other neighborhoods downtown. Uh, On the other hand, you know, and saying that, I'm not discounting that Congressman Rangel that there's not a piece of public housing or a public health clinic or a Mitchell-Lama project in Harlem that doesn't have his name on it somehow because of his involvement. But on the other hand, I guess Uh, one thing that was disheartening to me uh, regarding Congressman Rangel is that when his book came out a couple of years ago, he was interviewed by New York Magazine, and and the reporter said, well, Congressman Rangel, isn't it kind of ironic that um, policies like the empowerment zone that you have uh, championed have made Harlem more hospitable to um, Brooklyn hipsters than many people who've lived here for generations, Mm and And that, you know, that these policies are probably hastening the day that Harlem will be a very dramatically different kind of a place. And so Congressman Rangel said um, something which I just don't believe to be true. He said, well, of course, the high rents, that's problematic. But he said, um, Harlem will always remain Harlem. And he said, and... Certainly, it's better to have new buildings, even with high rents, than it is to have um, dilapidated buildings with broken windows and empty lots. Well, the thing of it is, is I think that there are probably many people who, if that was the option given to them, would you live in this? Would you prefer to live in this community with? dilapidated buildings and vacant lots as opposed to living next door to a building with um, $3,000 studios and $2 million penthouses that you could never afford to live in, which would you prefer? Now, of course, nobody really wants that kind of choice. And, and, uh, and isn't that terrible that after 40-odd years, that's the kind of choice you're offering in your community? But on the other hand, people are not racist because they have antipathy in seeing more and more white people coming. People are just mindful of their own survival, that they want to continue to be able to live in their neighborhood, and they realize that policies are afoot, to make it more attractive for other people and to make it more difficult and that and policies which make it more difficult for these people who have lived here for
0: a long time to continue to live here. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Now, as I close up, I want to give you an opportunity to to plug the work that you've been doing on the preservation front. You, you've been really trying to um, eradicate the wrongs of a church in Harlem called ATLA, uh, you can explain the backdrop of, uh, about what the issue is there and what you've been trying to do to fix it.
1: Well, you know, the Adult Church—it's uh, it, it, a—it's a, a, a real bizarre thing because we have freedom of speech in America, and this guy—he talks about how President Obama is gay and how he's a Kenyan and not really a citizen, and all sorts of other spurious. hateful charges. He suggests that uh, um, uh, whites and homos are taking over Harlem and that um, black women should look out for their men or else a white man will take him from you, as Sine has said at various points. And and then to say really tragic things like uh, Jesus would stone homos and stoning is still the law well, think of some young gay person or even some young person uncertain about their sexuality, 11, 12, 13, worrying that they might be gay and seeing that sign and what impact it. It's just, it's horrific. And uh, in this way, the politicians have disappointed me because they've said things like, oh, well, you know, Um, He just wants attention, and if you give him attention, you're feeding into what he wants. No, we've got an anti-discrimination ordinance in New York, and freedom of speech or no freedom of speech, you should not be able to say that it's right for any people to be stoned and that stoning is the law, Uh, but um, can't always get everything um, that you think is right, even um, if uh, you feel there's justification uh, to, to, to have something like this terrible sign taken down because of the um, hate that it exposes. But Al Capone, uh, you know, he finally went to jail, not for all of the terrible, nefarious drug dealing and um, other illegal things he was doing, but for tax evasion. And in the case of Adelaide Church, the Reverend Manning has ignored um, the fact that his building, which was built originally as the Harlem Club of New York and later became the, uh, a business college and then became one of Father Divine's peace missions, he has ignored that this building is within the Mount Morris Park Historic District and that just like every other property owner that he has bound – to abide by the city ordinance that um, regulates how one can treat one's building in this historic district. Put in some inappropriate gates and lights and um, a railing that's inappropriate and unapproved, and the very sign, the physical sign, that he's put these um, hateful messages on uh, that sign is much bigger than the sign which had been there um, when the building was designated a landmark. And it's very different from the sign that was there when the building was designated a landmark. And he has had no approval from the commission and indeed has been issued violations by the commission. But what they have it done is they have it within their, um, they have it within their authority to be able to issue fines fines that escalate. And so we've got a a, uh, um, petition going around um, on Facebook um, that we're asking people to sign, to send to the commission, so we can get the commission to do their duty and to issue fines to um, Reverend Manning and his church, um, which we think will be so expensive for them to address that Um, they won't be able to afford to rebuild the sign once they've taken it down. Um, But also, we just want to show people that there are real consequences for what you do. That real... A kind of paradox about my preservation battles in Harlem is that because of Harlem's uh, protracted neglect, Um, due to poverty and due to redlining and due to the fact that people weren't so concerned about the um, overwhelmingly poor African Americans who lived in Harlem over the past 50 years. Poverty preserved all kinds of wonderful things in Harlem that don't exist in any other neighborhood. So, you know, it it used to be that in the 1850s there was a half-dozen uh, cast-iron fire watch towers throughout the city that were sort of like uh, fire rangers stations in a, in a national park where someone sat at the top of this high tower looking out through a telescope to see if there were any fires and then when he found a fire he would ring a bell and use a code to tell the firefighters where this uh, fire was located thank goodness they invented the telegraph because as you can imagine that was not a very efficient way identifying where fires were and getting them put out in time before a lot of damage had been done. Well, the only one of those fire watch towers that survives is in Harlem at the top of Marcus Garvey Park and um, with money provided by our local politicians, Inez Dickens and um, former bearer President Scott Stringer and Bill Perkins and um, all these politicians, along with the Parks Department, um several million dollars were raised and that sole fire watchtower is going to be restored the thing of it is that um now that harlem is no longer being neglected all of that interest in developing harlem is creating a terrible problem because buildings which shouldn't be demolished or shouldn't be altered are threatened with demolition and alteration because of all this interest in development in Harlem. So that um, the building which was the um, Connie's Inn nightclub, which later became um, the Yabangi Club, um, that was at 132nd Street and 7th Avenue, um, it was recently demolished by the church that owned it um, rather than being landmarked. And then, of course, um, uh, the um, Uh, um, Hotel Cecil where um, Minton's Playhouse the place where bebop was created in the late 30s and early 40s um, its original neon sign from the 1930s was still there and recently um, rather than that being preserved as a wonderful manifestation of this glorious history of um, jazz music in Harlem it was um, taken down and sent to the Smithsonian African American Museum in Washington Um, So, in that regard, Harlem is under threat more than ever, but given that you now have a certain number of um, well-to-do African Americans and whites who have the leisure to be concerned about historic preservation, uh, you also have the reality that um, there's a growing interest, um, greater than ever before um, since I've lived in Harlem in 1985 in preserving the historic buildings of this community. And uh, you have groups that have tried to, um, that are just in these embryonic stages of forming on Facebook um, with the purpose of trying to preserve Harlem's architectural heritage. So that's um, a positive thing, but, of course, it's so, so complicated because it, uh, one wonderful thing is that the, all of the local community boards have landmarks committees and are looking into um, preserving uh, rich historical uh, um, Areas like the African Burial Ground in East Harlem, um, and Community Board uh, Community Board Ten, they in Central Harlem, they have come up with a preservation plan with um, certain individual buildings, like the building where the Empowerment Zone is now, which was built as the Harlem Board of Trade and um, a little more than hundred years ago. Um, uh, they um, have identified some buildings that they think should be designated as individual landmarks on an emergency basis, as well as some um, potential historic districts. And they've pointed out that there's this terrible disparity in what's been protected in Harlem versus other neighborhoods. So that in Greenwich Village, about three-quarters of the buildings there are protected by landmarking. And on the Upper West Side, again, you've got about two-thirds of the buildings there protected by landmarking. But in Harlem, only about 5% of the buildings in Harlem are protected by landmarking, and that, of course, is just not right. Harlem has just as many um, historic and architecturally significant structures as Greenwich Village. And so this is something that we need to have change, and we think we're making some headway with the local politicians and getting them to appreciate that landmarking and preserving the heritage of African Americans who created the Harlem Renaissance is something that is so very important, not just in terms of making people proud about the community they live in, but in terms of attracting tourists and attracting real estate development. It can be used as a tool in the same way that it has been in other more prosperous neighborhoods downtown.
0: Mm-hmm. And so in closing, looking towards the future, um, are you optimistic?
1: I I have mis- my misgivings. Um, you know, back in the 1920s, um, James Weldon Johnson wrote Black Manhattan and he mused about whether or not in the future Harlem might not become such a valuable place that black New Yorkers wouldn't be able to afford to hold on to it. Well, something that he really failed to note back then was that even then in the 20s and, and thereafter, a relatively small amount of property in Harlem was ever actually acquired by African Americans, owned by African Americans. And that is the one kind of chink in the armor of Harlem that makes it problematic as to there being a significant black presence in Harlem in the future. Um, Because uh, as properties become more and more valuable, even the relatively few african-americans who own them will have more and more incentive to uh, sell and then to take their um, to take their um, investment which has appreciated so and to get a lot more bang for their buck in new jersey or um... connecticut or somewhere else on the other hand I also feel as if, more than ever, African Americans appreciate the unique uh, legacy which we wrought in this place, which um from is is probably right, will always be viewed as the African American cultural capital. And um, so I like to feel that we're at a kind of crossroads whereby if african-americans in coalition with progressive whites can bring pressure to bear upon our elected officials that it's still not too late to put policies in place that will help to keep Harlem and an African-American community. And and when I say that, I'm not trying to be racist again. What I appreciate better than ever with the second election of President Obama is that the deliberate um, segregation that kept large concentrations of African-Americans in places like Harlem and Washington, D.C., and New Orleans and Philadelphia actually gave us a basis with the Voting Rights Act of being able to exert political power in a way that would be impossible if African Americans were dispersed in communities all over the country. And so in order to maintain some viable political power, That's yet another reason why it's important for African Americans to try to hold on to um, Harlem as um, a place that is um, distinctly our own. And um, that is a goal that is a worthy one for us to pursue and which I hope um, will inspire people to acquire property, to Buy apartments to establish businesses and to perpetuate um, one of the most magical um, and incredible places that ever was settled in the entire world. Um, our own village of Harlem, with um, with a population as great as Rome's, that um, um, is a place. That was so special that Lincoln Kirstein said that in the 1920s, he and other whites coming up to explore in Harlem thought of it as being just like another arrondissement
0: of Paris. Hmm. Very interesting. So in closing, Mr. Henry Adams, I want to give the listening audience an opportunity to learn more about your work. I know you have a book out, and or a couple of books, actually, and you have a blog. Please tell us about it.
1: Well, I do this blog, which I contribute to uh, 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 I'm haphazardly, called Mr. Michael Henry's Style and Taste, and I talk about uh, history as it relates to African Americans, history as it relates to... Um, LGBT people, and um, also just things that I think of as beautiful and special and wonderful and marvelous and irreplaceable. Um, My book, Harlem Lost and Found, came out um, 11 years ago, and um, it's still in print, and I am hoping that I will be able to do a kind of sequel Called Harlem Here and Now, that will talk about how Harlem is changing and evolving, and who lives here now, and uh, one that a book that might muse about what is the future of Harlem as well. Um, in addition, I um, have been working on for about the past ten years a book called Homo Harlem: A History of uh, um, gays and lesbians in the african-american cultural capital at harlem and um, I um, in addition am uh, working on putting together a book called black by design that will be um, a compilation of um, examples of the work of some of the leading african-american Um, interior designers and landscape architects and furniture designers in the country. Um, uh, Harlem is a um, special place. I always say to people, irrespective of race or income, really, come to Harlem. It is a special part of New York that is more livable and friendly and welcoming than any other part of Manhattan. And it is compared to other parts of Manhattan, a bargain, and uh, hopefully that will continue to be um, the case. Uh, So I think that's about cover it.
0: Okay. And since you brought it up, when they do come to Harlem, where should they go? Well, uh,
1: there are various restaurants in Harlem, more than ever. Um, some that I like very much include Cherie, which is this uh, French restaurant which has uh, a set menu um, that changes daily um, and a charming uh, Courtyard in the back that is glassed over in the wintertime and open to the stars um, in warm weather. And then there is Bar Wine, which is a really fun and happening place with um, uh, um, a really wonderful vibe and lots of local people coming there to relax. Um, Pani is a kind of pioneer because it has um, delicious Italian cuisine and it was. Established by um, Leah Abraham, a native of, uh, of uh, um, Eritrea, next to Ethiopia, and her Italian husband, Nino Satopani. Um they, they established that 12 years ago and it's still going strong. Um, Spoonbread, the two Spoonbread restaurants are owned by my friend Norma Jean Darden, who um, has the leading African-American catering firm in New York and who serves these wonderful down-home southern delicacies that um, were all derived from family recipes. Um, So when people want down-home cooking rather than Sylvia's, that's where I take them. Um, Giotto Sushi is my favorite sushi restaurant uptown. And um, uh, the closest thing that Harlem currently has to a gay bar is um, a little cafe that's called the Harlem Food Bar on um, 8th Avenue and um, uh, um, Serengeti Teas is wonderful for um, exotic teas and coffee and uh, there's a lovely tapas restaurant on um, Lenox Avenue um, also known as Malcolm X Boulevard and 132nd Street and um, there is this charming restaurant called Vinataria, um at 119th Street and uh, Frederick Douglass Boulevard, which um, has a wonderful menu. Um, and uh, there's Billy's Black, there's uh, um, um, uh, um, Lido. There- and, of course, you know, there's uh, the Red Rooster. And if you go to the Red Rooster, the, the um, uh, most dynamic restaurant in Harlem where you can see all kinds of celebrities from uh, um, um, Whoopi Goldberg to uh, um, Charlie Rose to Barbara Walters. Um, if you go there and you don't have a reservation and you can't get in, you can always go next door to... Uh, Um, Chez Lucien, which is wonderful because they'll always find a place for you um, no matter what. So they are wonderful restaurants. There's the Studio Museum in Harlem, which has uh, these incredible Friday night parties um, the last Friday of the month and during the summer. And there are these wonderful dance parties that attract young people and are so much fun because uh, they play R&B in Old Style House and and young people come, and you wonder, how do, they, how do they know this music? They weren't even born when these songs were, came out. Um, and then uh, uh, the Apollo Theater is a wonderful place to go to um, learn about our cultural history and to take a tour. Um, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture uh, is, you know, the preeminent repository of artifacts that um, document and celebrate African-American attainment um, throughout the African diaspora. And uh, um, the morris Jamel Mansion um, um, completed in 1765 It's the oldest house to survive on Manhattan Island. And the Morrises and the Jamales who lived there um, at the beginning of its history both um, had African slaves who worked as servants for them. Um, The um, Hamilton Grange, Alexander Hamilton's country house at 141st Street um, and Convent Avenue, Um, is also a remarkable um, survivor from the time of the early republic. It was completed in 1804, and it was designed by John McComb, Jr., the architect of the city hall, and it's a very elegant uh, and charming landmark, which has been moved three times in order to save it and um, survives still. City College has a beautiful campus of neo-Gothic buildings and is a place that um, can boast that more Nobel laureates have been graduates of City College of New York than any other university in the entire world. And so as Langston Hughes said of Harlem, there is so much to see and do in Harlem and uh, people should come and do it and enjoy the African-American cultural capital while it still can uh, justify that name. (laughs) While it
0: still can justify that. that I should also
1: say that someplace that people should definitely go, this is like a sort of best-kept secret of Harlem, is on 132nd Street between 7th Avenue and 8th Avenue or that is officially between Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard and uh, Frederick Douglass Boulevard on 132nd Street is the veteran of Foreign Wars Legion Post, which has um, jazz performances on most nights and which which on Wednesday nights has their fish fry where you can get a wonderful fish dinner for just $10, and all the drinks are only $4, and there's no cover for some of the best jazz and, and most intimate performances of jazz in New York. They just pass the hat, and you give whatever you will, and that is a truly, truly special thing that people should participate in.
0: Indeed. See, when I first asked you that question, I was expecting you to give maybe one, two, or three top you know, places but, of course, I should have known when you ask Michael Henry Adams a question like that, that he will give you as long as the places in Harlem, indeservantly so, because there is so much to do here. There uh, is so the too, but
1: also, also you have to keep in mind that, you know, all the cultural spots, all the restaurants, I've met these people as they've come in and attempted to do something in Harlem. Um, you know, there's this wonderful Israeli woman who owns Corner Social, And I was there when she had the trouble that they were sort of trying to extort her and tell her she couldn't Mm -hmm. call her place Linux Social because I was too close to the Linux lounge, so she changed the name. Imagine having to go to crap like that. And so I want to help support these people um, um, because they are trying to do something really wonderful. They're trying to give Harlem the same vitality that it once had but which had been lost, which is coming back, and that's a wonderful thing.
0: That's wonderful. Well, Michael Henry Adams, it was such a delight to speak with you, as always, of course, because you are such a wealth of knowledge uh, and, and etiquette. I would say you're you're, you're a fine gentleman. As, as David Dinkins, former mayor of New York, said to me one day, because you're a fine lad. <laughs> so, Michael Henry Adams, you're a fine lad. You fall into that category as well.
1: Well, I hope that qualifies me for your buying me a drink later. <laughs>
0: absolutely, yes, it does, indeed, absolutely. Oh, okay. uh, and hold me, and hold me too. Whenever you're done doing whatever it is that you're doing, Shadi is calling our name. Well, I
1: look forward to it. So, thank you. Okay, thank you uh, so much. Not at all. Bye bye.
0: All right, bye. Uh, That was Michael Henry Adams, who you were just listening to, the preeminent Harlem historian, scholar, author, preservationist. I can really go on and on because he does so many things, all of which is to the betterment not just of the Harlem community and its preservation for uh, uh, African Americans, but for the city of New York and the state of New York. He does a lot of lobbying work on the city and the state level to make sure that communities that are supposed to be intact with historical preservation, stay intact. I'm Roy Paul. This is a Gift of to Freedom. Today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want, including to how you're listening to this interview right now. You will get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. That is very important, that website link, www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Again, I'm Lord Paul stepping in, The Gifts of Freedom, Freedom thegiftsofreedom.com. Thank you, and good night.
2: Send the preacher to the Holy Land.